Welcome to the Concrete Podcast, where we talk all things concrete. Featuring your host, Brandon Gore. Well, 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 we meet again. <laughs> we usually do. Like we usually do. So, welcome to the Concrete Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Gore, joined always by my co-host, John Schuler. How's it going, John? Doing well, doing well. Good morning. Good morning. So, we're going to chat with Joe Bates at SE Fab here in a few, but before we get to that, uh, what do you want to talk about? Uh, well, we've touched a little bit on the UHPC concretes. One thing I would like to touch on a little bit more, I might even take more than one intro along the line, I don't know, but you know, I would say on a daily basis, I at least get one to two conversations with people regarding, or, a, or let's say a lack of understanding about what materials they're using, the relationship between those materials, you know, ultimately, I guess what takes whatever version of concrete plasticizer sealer they're using and a true understanding about how the puzzle pieces fit one way or another. People, I think, too often still look at all of these things as independent pieces rather than seeing the full picture. And that leads people down, you know, a, a path of problems they didn't didn't foresee because they still looking at it as individuals and you and by doing that yeah by doing that they're using products that aren't friendly with each other so they're using incorrect plasticizers or incorrect sealers or incorrect release agents that kind of thing right no exactly exactly and and i think the hard part with so many people either getting into this or even if they've been into it for years is getting a grasp on let's say i mean you know, you're an, you're an artisan or whatever a person wants to call themselves. And you may have an expectation out of what you want to present to your clients. Again, whatever that expectation is. But understanding how to meet that expectation, that's where I, I, I've seen so many people, including us, I mean, right in the beginnings, even us, it, you know, understanding or lack of understanding that, hey, I choose this mixed design. <laughs> like, Brandon, I know you didn't do it as much, but don't you remember where, um, you know, years ago, all of us, it seemed like what we thought was our biggest problem was our concrete. You know what I mean? Yeah. That generalized term, the concrete. And so all of us were, right, what sands are you using? What cements? What are your ratios? And and we thought the the, the uber secret out there was, Someone must be using a certain concrete. Um, now, that's certainly true to a degree. Hence, you know, ultra-high performance concrete, you know, like the mixes we're using now versus, you know, a post-hole bag sacrete. You know, certainly have two different ends of the spectrum when it comes to an expectation out of your concrete. But we didn't really see where hey, I was using Adva versus this or, you know, some other off-brand or a plasticizer, and you know, or like you said, or a, a release agent. We didn't understand that the pinholes we were seeing was coming from the release agent when we were still trying to focus on the concrete. 
And then ultimately how all of this comes together from cure techniques, concrete, et cetera, et cetera, has a massive impact on sealer choice, right? And the, yeah. and the durability of that final product that we're going to take into a, into a person's home and hence get paid for and take responsibility for, for the next, you know, at least through the warranty we, we give. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's something, it's a huge subject. But uh, it's a huge think, subject. It's way yeah. too big for us to cover yeah, all of minutes, it yeah. Yeah. in this. But let's pick one part of that. What do you want to cover today? Um, well, we've touched on, have we touched on curing? I think we've touched on curing a little bit, right? Well, we can talk, touch on curing, but I want to talk more about what you're talking about, about products playing well together and how guys try to go their own way and then get bad results, right? Right. Um, yeah. so if we had to talk about that today, which I think we'll talk to Joe a little bit about later would be plasticizer, because I know he had an issue using a plasticizer <clears throat> that's not recommended to use with maker mix and he had bad results and right. I've, I've had the same thing. So do you want to talk about yeah. how plasticizer affects mix, especially oh, oh, yeah, our UHPC? Yeah, yeah that, that's a great one. So okay. in this case, when we get into UHPCs, Ultra high performance concretes, comparatively speaking, are higher in fines content, meaning, you know, fine particle for packing ability, you know, to create both a very strong, but also a very dense concrete, you know, so, you know, little, little relationships a person might see would be uh, richness in color, um, you know, higher strengths, impact resistance, et cetera, et cetera. To work with that kind of concrete, you also need a plasticizer. Hey, John. That can handle hey. those fine materials. Yeah. Hey, homie, stop yeah. walking around. I can tell you're walking around. You're cutting okay. in and out. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I can see you in my head pacing back and forth. Your, <laughs> your hands going do. wild. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. So, um, yeah, so a perfect example is, and I think you did this, is you've, you know, for years doing some of your GFRC mixes, you got used to using something like an ADVA 555, which, get, yeah. which is a liquid plasticizer. And one of the benefits of an ADVA is it has what's called a viscosity modifying agent in, which, again, is, is a great incorporation a viscosity modifying agent for those people who don't know what that is. It's, you know, I, I think of it like a scaffolding for the mix. So it helps prevent uh, mix separation. It gives a mix stability. And it also gives ultimately the person probably a little more leeway in a mix, to, you know, not, not high enough fine content and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's insurance you, you, on a construction site because they're dumping it into a, a batch truck. And exactly. Yeah. You know, th there's a wide range they can get away with and end up with the end result versus our mix, which is super precise and the plasticizer yes. super precise. And you can't, you don't have that very vari variable in range that you have with the plasticizer with a VMA in it. Well, and it's not necessary. Yeah. I mean, so exactly. Well, it doesn't work, case, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just, uh, like you found out, you, you start off with something you thought you were used to working with. And next thing you know, you're now pouring it in like syrup, but the mix is actually getting worse. It's turning to this big gelatinous, you know, mess 
Um, and that, again, that's just realizing that there is, you know, done correctly, which I think Kodiak has definitely done, done correctly, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship that goes between those materials, specifically in this case, plasticizer. So TBP sets itself apart. It certainly can be used in other mixes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing plasticizer if someone decides they want to use something else. But on the flip side, you pull other choices that are available out there and then try to mix it with uh, the uh, maker's mix. And you may find yourself using number three, four times the amount of plasticizer you're using. Uh, there's some great liquids out there that are available. You may have shrinkage issues or curling issues or separation issues uh, that that you're not going to have if you had used the materials that were made and designed to work together. Yeah. Well, plasticizer is probably one of the primary ones that guys try to do their own thing with because all of us have plasticizer in our shops that we paid money for and it's sitting on the shelf and we look at it every day and we think, "Eh, I'm just going to use that up. Because yeah. I spend money on it, uh, so that's yeah, that's yeah. a primary one. Um, fibers, one that some guys probably are trying to use fibers from from other industries with what we're doing. Yep. I don't think concrete guys are doing it as much. I know in the beginning people are trying to take chop strand fiber for fiberglass that wasn't AR fiber and mix it in to make GFRC, and that still happens in countries where AR isn't readily available. Um, but I think that's less of an issue. I think it's for the most part, I think it's plasticizer. I think it comes down to sealer choices that guys are using that um, not necessarily they aren't compatible, but they just aren't the right kind of sealer to use on a UHPC. You know, if, let's talk about that for one second. Let's sure. say we want to put a coating on a UHPC that's a super dense mix. Well, yeah. then you have to do a super heavy profile to get it to bond because it needs a mechanical bond to yeah, yeah. that substrate. Or had we used a really crappy Quickrete 5000 that was really porous like lava, well, that topical would bond to it much easier because we're going on a really bad substrate. So it sticks to it. Correct. Whereas yeah, yeah. topical is meant for mechanical bonding. Yes. Exactly. So our mix, yeah. maker mix, is not, you can do a topical on it, but it's not optimal to do a topical because it's such a dense mix. It doesn't have as much grip to it. It doesn't want to bite into it. That, that's absolutely true. And then the other part of that equation is it's not meant for a topical because it's not necessary. I mean, you're, now you're talking about a mix who has its own, because of its density and et cetera, et cetera, it has a wealth of its own resistances that makes the use of a topical like, I, 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 don't, I don't know why you would use a topical with makeups, quite frankly. I don't. Why would somebody would use a, a top? In general. Yeah. Why? 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 Why does somebody use a topical? What's the reason? Well, I think that the the perception of a topical is, and and again, I think this this is what I have seen, and I think this is a short sighted way of looking at things. But when all of us, you know, when a person puts something out of his shop and into a person's home, they have this idea that. It needs to be this perfect piece based on whatever expectation they thought they were bringing out to deliver. And topicals seem to fit that because, you know, you put it on, 
And at least once you get through, let's say, a 24, 48-hour kind of cure in a topical, you know, a film is formed. And if the film, within reason, has been formed correctly with whatever product you're using, you know, stain resistance does very well. The, the short side of that is the scratch resistance, the wear resistance, and the long-term use, at least in concrete, uh, topicals just don't hold up very well. So they, they seem fantastic walking out the door and then you get a check. But let's say with both of us, history has proven that the longevity is not necessarily there compared to other ways of thinking. Yeah. Is there ever an instance where you would want to use a topical? Well, I think just under that. <laughs> I'm saying like, where... is, there, is, there, is there an instance where the reactive sealer is not the optimal choice? Is there an instance where topical is a better choice? As far as durability, longevity, whatever. No, I don't think so. I think really what it boils down to from everything I've done over the years is, first of all, understanding what each of them has to offer and then ultimately setting an expectation. So to me, the only time a topical would be a choice better than the, the my philosophy over the years, which is incredibly dense concrete when hair and resistance is a sealer that does nothing more than um, enhance those characteristics would be a situation where and I'm going to say still uh, probably if not the only wary part with ICT is it's a breathable technology. So if a person didn't understand that if you set a wet glass or a wet object on those surfaces, and there may be a vapor ring of some sort, you know, that ultimately goes away, but they don't want to, a client to ever do that. They don't want to, then they go the idea of a topical. Well, in that instance, would they do a reactive ICT with a topical over it? Because I mean, Boy, you talked about this. There's been situations where I've done sinks for restaurants that never dry out. They're used from the moment they open to the moment they close. They never get an instance to dry. And so the the moisture, the vapor from the water transfers through and it never gets a chance every day. It just soaks in and, and sits there. Right. And in those instances, what I've um, asked you about is, is it okay to put, uh, let's say, a breathable acrylic? Not I wouldn't do like epoxy or anything, but like a, a nice acrylic over the top of an ICT sealed piece and you're viewpoint was, yeah, it's not going to hurt anything. You can do that. No. Yeah, I agree. No, that's not going to hurt anything. Just as we've seen, you know, I think Dusty and a few other guys have tried it is I think your, your repellency would be the same, but now repellency versus resistance becomes a very different conversation. So in this case too, I think the breathable acrylic would add some repellency, but ultimately I think the resistance would be the same. So, well, I'm not doing it for resistance. I'd be doing it only to try to prevent that water from uh, water vapor from soaking in and never giving the sink a chance to dry out because I've made sinks that I had to make a rubber mold off of. So let's say I made a sink for a client. It didn't come out the way I wanted it. Um, instead of remaking that form again, I'll just pour rubber into the sink that I didn't like and then, uh, and then use that rubber mold to cast the sink a second time. Sure. But when I do that, I'll spray just minwax, matte polyurethane on the concrete and then pour the rubber in so it releases off easily. But the, the minwax matte polyurethane, I've put some of those sinks outside, meaning to destroy them and get rid of them. 
and it's rained and they'll hold water for two or three weeks, never darken. Mm-hmm. It snowed. There's been ice for months. Yeah. They sit out there and I go out there and look at them and they still look good. Now I wouldn't rely on that as my primary ceiling surface, you know, uh, yeah, you're thinking more like a all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just, yeah, think, it's just to protect the ICT from. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, if it was done young enough, meaning like, you know, during the ceiling steps or just after the ceiling steps, then, you know, I think the reactive value of ICT would lock onto that urethane and use it like a sacrificial. Just understanding at some point, now in this case, you're talking about things that, you know, weren't being abraded. They were sitting outside. They certainly held up to weather, but they weren't being used. So, you know, as that urethane begins to be worn through, then sure, that's giving the given ICT its reactive time to do what it wants to do with the concrete. And under that circumstance, yeah, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. Yeah. Now, all that yeah, being I would, said, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say I wouldn't do it for any other reason than bathroom sinks and high traffic areas. That sure. That's that's been my only experience with ICT that I wouldn't say is a downside of it, but in areas that just never dry. Right. It's, you know, it, it's a sealer that breathes and moisture goes through it. So yeah. um, I think it would be good, but I wouldn't do it on a surface that gets abrasion like a countertop or a tabletop. I think only sinks where you're washing your hands, soap and water. That's it. I think it'd right. be okay. And it could be I reapplied. Just you. thinking about a can of matte polyurethane is after a couple of years, you could go back in there. Spray. Yeah. Give it, give it a good clean, a good scrub with a scotch bright, another light coat. Boom, 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 done. The, the ICT below it is still good. Um, and then you renewed the acrylic on top, and there you go. Sure. And, and all that being said, yeah, a thousand percent agree with you. What I would add as a caveat to that is these things we're discussing, they, they probably bear more importance, if you will, with older versions of ICT or other versions that that some distributors have. In my opinion, from what I'm seeing and feedback I'm getting is the new CT chemistries have taken probably, you know, 90, 95% of this phenomenon away. And the prime step has been a game changer for a lot of guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, And this is something I always do. So the project I just got done completing and I test, I mean, I, Again, anybody who came even to my house or to my lab would <laughs> would probably just giggle when you see how many samples are sitting around, you know, constantly being sealed and tested, tested and sealed, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I guess um, my typical application methods is, you know, run through the prime, a single application, a sealer. I cover things up like I normally would I, under my heat blankets and so forth. I let that heat here for 24 to maybe 48 hours, depending on my schedule to get back to it. Then I come back and finish my application of sealer. And I did that to a cast in place project. The following morning, I'm like, well, you know, let's see what this is doing. So I put wet glasses on this, set a timer for an hour, came back, picked up those glasses. And no, they're, I mean, if I was going to call it a ring, it was so faint that you have to know what you're looking for before you even consider it a, a, a ring. Now, again, my stuff's always going to be breathable, always. That, that is something about the strength, in my opinion, of this technology. 
So it will not delaminate. You're not going to scrape it off. I mean, these, these are some of the strengths of it. But that being said, you know, the ability to see a super faint ring instead of a, you know, super, a, a strong, dark thing that sets you off, that's the benefit of the newer technologies through the CT chemistries that have come about in the last year. What does so CT stand for? Countertop. Countertop. Yeah, if you, you've known me for years, and one thing I will say, I am amazing at coming up with names, right? Amazing. I thought it was like cuddles and tickles or something like that. <laughs> no, no, no. So CT, you know, a way of just separating, because I, I have a distributor out there that, that has a certain version of the formulas. And yeah, so I wanted to separate what I'm doing, what I'm offering through Kodiak and et cetera, et cetera. So that, because as you and I both know, ICT is an acronym that's used very generally for any of the sealers that are out there. In fact, like you just hit me the other day. Isn't there another company out there called ICT? There's two other companies called ICT in addition to yours. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So in the, the concrete sealer industry. I mean, it's not even ICT and they do something else. They do concrete sealer, sealer yeah, and they're called ICT. Right. Insane. I had no idea. So no, so it's just a way of, of separating what I'm doing without having to always explain. So that people who know John Schuler and ICT as a general, you know, understand that what what Kodiak and myself is bringing to the table as we move forward is a very different chemistry, you know, different than other things that are still being offered. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Well, amazingly happy with. So, yeah, I'm psyched on the new um, ICT. Like I said, PS1, some guys had good success with PS1. I wasn't one of them. Mm -hmm. And when I started using PS1, that's when I came out with Quantum, which was a different technology, which was more in line with the older technologies of ICT. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worked better for me. Um, But we had a, because of COVID, we had a material supplier issue and couldn't continue making quantum. But when you came to the um, last Pinnacle Concrete Camp and you brought the new CT with the new Prime and you demonstrated it, it was insane. It was yeah. so far better than any other version of, of ICT that's ever existed it, with how, how fast it reacted and how well it reacted that, uh, yeah, I'm psyched on it. So. And so is everybody else. I mean, the feedback has been amazing. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy with it. Very happy with it. Well, if you're happy, I'm happy. Well, I'm happy that I'm happy. <laughs> We're <laughs> all tell just you what, happy little concrete person, people. The other person that's super happy is uh, Amy, my wife. Because yeah? she lives with me. Oh, yeah, dude. I, I mean, she lives with me. So she sees me go through it. I mean, uh, anybody... I realize, you know, no one else is living with me. So uh, perception of what a person may or may not be doing in a tiny little business with mine, which is me, right? I mean, I don't, uh, my, when I say I go to the lab, it's literally me in lab. Uh, with my formulas, it's me who has to come up with any kind of new ideas and then get a hold of a raw materials manufacturer and talk with their chemists and see if this can be done. And I mean, it's always me. I don't have some lab full of geniuses to fall back on. 
So that being said, her living with me, she sees me goes through the roller coaster of an idea that didn't work or, you know, uh, like I said, <laughs> the samples that sit around on our countertops or on our table and that I'm constantly bringing home so that I'm not running back and forth to the lab, you know, 40 times a day, you know, hey, so when, hey. when she sees me, yeah. Let's, because this is, I'm having flashbacks to, um, uh, what was that guy's name? Murray, uh, Murray Clark. Clark. Yeah. You'd call down, his wife would pick up and say, Murray's in the factory right now, packaging yeah. pigment. The factory was a tin shed in his backyard, right? That was yeah. the factory. Your lab, which is beautiful, but it's a log cabin in the woods, way off right. in the woods. It's a log cabin. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the cabin. You, you go to the cabin. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the cabin. Because every time you say yeah. the lab, I'm just having Murray Clark flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it is. It's uh, 800 square feet, and uh, right? You see the, it's beautiful. the mixers. It. And, yeah, it is. And it's in a great setting, but no, that's yeah. what he uses my lab. <clears throat> um, I, I have visions of beakers and boilers and lab coats and no. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, no, no. Just me with blenders and, as you saw, those shelves full of uh, materials and stuff. But, um, yeah, so she's happy. She's happy because then I calm down, start sleeping again, and which allows her to sleep. So, and when yeah, you so say sleeping again, well, you, mean, you mean sleeping three or four hours versus one or two? or Pretty much, yeah. 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 I'm not much of a sleeper. Never have been. Yeah. But um, yeah. So no, man, I, I, it's for anybody who's been part of this game with you and I, you know, you and I, two guys that uh, quite frankly have continued to, as you use the word, disrupt this industry, our little niche industry, which some people love us and some people hate us because of it. You know, this is a very exciting time. In my, yeah. in my opinion, yeah. I mean, we've the new materials that we're bringing to the table, <clears throat> which is undeniably continuing to see it set people's projects apart with higher qualities, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the new chemistries that are coming out, uh, this, it's an exciting time. Yeah. Well, the products are allowing people to do things that were unachievable with mixed technologies from even a couple of years ago. In the sealer technology, in, in symbionts with this maker's mix, allows people to have the confidence to put it into a high-demand project, universities, restaurants, what have you, and feel really confident that it's going to perform at a super high level and exceed the client's expectations. Um, but yeah, the product line is insane. You know, really I've is. been doing this. I'm in my 19th year of business. I think you're about the same. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's just incredible. Like what's happened in the last 20 years, last two decades in relation to concrete in general over the last 2000 years is incredible, you know, yeah. but then you take what's happened in the last year, even in relation to the last 20 years. And it's incredible. Um, just huge, massive gains in a very short time span. Yeah. I think it's awesome. Well, it is. And I think you'll agree. A big part of those advances is because, and I don't want to put us, you know, like a big feather in our hat, but the reality is it's because we're involved with it. And what I mean by that is we got to, as you just said, 
19 years of history of working in our shops, storing materials, you know, buying products, uh, you know, to start looking around going, okay, what are all the things that from a business point of view has been a total pain in our ass, right? Hey, I got one. How about this? I'm tired of buying five different admixtures because I think that this mix has to have these things and this mix has to have these things. And, and the next thing you know, you know, there's, there's stuff that's going bad or shelf life. And, you know, I mean, look at which, well, wait a minute. No, I don't want to do that. I don't have all this shop space. Yeah. Well, like the other part that's that, a little more versatile. <laughs> I mean, me and you are going on today. We got something in us like we're yeah. 28 minutes right now. But that being said, something else that I think that me and you were doing a little bit differently is in years past, people, companies felt the need to label very specifically products, ECC, GFRC, clay mix, right. sprayable mix, um, carvable mix, whatever, yep. right? Boom, 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 boom. But the truth of the matter is, if you have a really high quality, high performance mix, that mix can do all of those things better than any individual mix could do on its own. And you don't need, like you said, you don't need five ad mixes. You just need one insanely, you know, over-engineered mix that can do all those things for you. So it's kind of blurring the lines too between labels of ECC, GFRC. No you know, all these different things. It's it's no longer these are individual products. It's just one ultra high performance product. Well, and there you go. There's a situation where now, once again, you and me are stepping forward, disrupting this industry. I know we're pissing some other vendors off, right? Nah, I don't think yeah, so. Right? We're stepping up and saying, <laughs> hey guys, now all these other acronyms that were associated with these total different admixtures, these total different mixes, these total different, different. Now you and me are going, yeah, well now for us anyway, and people who want to follow this path, those acronyms are solely going to be based on the workability. You want to use GFRC? Oh, you're just going to use some glass fiber, but you'll still use yeah. the same mix with a slight modification in plasticizer. Oh, you want to do ECC, which used to be this whole different thing. No, no. Now, now we are referring to it as a workability because you can achieve all these things with a mix, a plasticizer that ac can accommodate that mix and those workabilities. And now your choice in fiber technology, again, goes with the ultimate, you know, the ultimate way you want to work on. That's great. Well, yeah. what we're doing is instead of looking at the concrete materials arena as uh, strictly monetary, like let's have 20 different products and 20 different plasticizers. And so guys have to buy all this stuff. So we sell more product. We're saying let's sell one great product, one great plasticizer, one great sealer technology, and you can do everything you need to do. And at the end of the day, it saves companies like ours lots of money, lots yes. of wasted material because, you know, I used to have bags of this ad mix, that ad mix. I right. probably still have 40 different bottles of different plasticizers up on my shelf yeah. that I'll never use. But you needed this one for that one. You needed this one for that one. So what we're trying to do is instead of looking at it from how can we 
extract the maximum amount of money out of these guys. We're looking at how do we want to be treated? What product would we want to use? Because we do use it. Yes. So what does that look like? And it looks like one great mix, one great plasticizer, one great sealer. Do everything right. you ever need to do for the rest of your life. And it's the absolute best out there. Right. And where does that come from? Well, as you said, a necessity coming from guys that have worked in their shop. And I'm tired of having all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, just, well, yeah. It, it comes from a place of empathy is not the right word, but empathy of, of thinking of what's it like to be somebody else. And we don't have to think what it's like to be somebody else because we do this. So we're treating the industry, we're treating other companies how we want to be treated, how we have not been treated for all these years. Because all That's these years true. we've been looked at as ATMs that just spit money out. We weren't treated as, you know, artisan craftsmen that are trying to run a business. And, you know, we, I guess all this time, these companies didn't do right by us and didn't treat us um, from a matter of respect. And uh, so that's what we're trying to do. And that comes down to the product offerings. It comes down to customer interaction, customer support. We're doing all the things that, you know, we wish other companies would have done towards us all these years. Agreed. And well, and as we keep saying, experience matters. You know, we're coming from the idea that what we're offering is based on, you know, a combined, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours of experience. Yeah, it's true. And it is. Yeah. No, and, and that's an entirely different animal. Yeah. Well, that's a topic of conversation for a different day. At some point, we'll get to the to the myths and rumors that surround John Schuler and Brandon Gore. <laughs> the, the, the mythology of, of uh, Brandon Gore and John Schuler because it's pretty interesting. But that's a topic for another day as well. Yeah. Today, what we need to do is we need to get Joe Bates Joe. on the phone. Yeah, yep. that's probably and, yeah. Yeah, it's probably really upset because we've gone on way too long. But let's get Joe on the phone of SC Fabrication in Napa Valley and uh, have a conversation with him. Sounds great. Oh, Malibu was beautiful. Had uh, moderate success with the install. It's one of those crazy jobs. Just has trying to make concrete perfectly imperfect so uh we're we're making some fixes and going back down again next week god ah. <laughs> right on they're good people good clients so it's fine yeah i don't envy you doing installs that's my absolute least favorite thing in the world to do is install i'm right there with you but, you know, over the years, we've kind of gotten good at it, unfortunately. And <laughs> I can't find somebody that does it better. So There you go. Or I know, but you never charge enough to make it worth it. That's what it comes down to. It's, At least for me. Well, yeah. I, we've, we've got a pretty good rep going with that. We've put a lot of effort into justifying our, our, our bill for, for being there and doing, installing our own work. So, yeah. For me, it was, 
it was a mix of lost opportunity for that day amount of work that I spent there. But number two is the assumed liability of being on site and hitting a you know 24 foot tall glazed wall or there's so many things that go sideways that would fall back on you just for being the good good guy doing installation and um i had a couple things happen i mean nothing catastrophic but you'd gouge drywall and the gc would lose his mind and you're like bro i mean this thing weighs 800 pounds we're struggling to get it in this space with an eighth inch clearance on the side you know yeah. relax it can be it can be fixed but it was uh yeah just it was just never worth it at the end of the day i always like look back and like i wish i would have just delivered it to the curb or had them pick it up or created it and let them deal with it you know yeah i always wish that and for you know we've gotten some great jobs where we have done that lately there's a recent one down in palm springs we just put it on a truck and away it went i mean that was a wonderful feeling yeah i know what you mean but you know we've been really lucky i've got some great clients and some really good contractors that get it and you know they're there to help and make sure we get in there and get our stuff done and uh, and there's plenty of room and people aren't in your way and et cetera, et cetera. yeah 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 so, you know did i ever tell you about when i got called a concrete diva on installation I, I can't imagine anyone saying that about you. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, Tempe, Tempe Public Library. We had met, it was this huge desk, entry desk. It had, you know, vertical wall and then a countertop, all integral. And I don't know, each section was like 12 feet by, you know, 42 inches tall with a 15 inch return or whatever. And uh, big desk, huge desk. And we met with the architect, we met with the builder, we met with the client. And at that meeting, I said, hey, we don't do installation. And the the builder, the owner of the company is like, what do you mean you don't do installation? I'm like, hey, brother, does Pella Windows come install the windows for you? Yeah, you know, right. does, does uh, I don't know, Kohler come install your toilets? No, they're, they're material uh, fabricators, product fabricators, and that's what I am. Um, I create a product, but I don't do installation. I will, out of a courtesy, do curbside delivery, so I'll bring it from my studio over here on a trailer. So you guys don't have to deal with that, but it's just curbside. So you need to have people here to unload it. I'm not going to unload it. And so he agreed to that. He's like, okay, cool. That's fine. And then we got closer to doing actual delivery and it was going to fall on a holiday. They were like super adamant, had to get in on this day. It was like Memorial day. It had to be in because the following day it was like all these other trades are going to be there. And I said, Hey, listen, it's a holiday. I just want to make sure you guys are going to have people there. And this was like the site superintendent. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we'll have people there. And I'm like, all right, cause we're not we're not taking it off the trailer. What do you mean you're not taking it off the trailer? I'm like, dude, I went over this with your boss. Curbside delivery. You need to have people take it off. I'm just telling you. You know, what time do you need me there? Noon. We'll be there at noon. Have your guys there. So it was like me and two of my helpers. And we, we pull up, not a car in the parking lot. Completely <laughs> empty. The whole place. Go up to the doors. <laughs> locked. All the lights are off. Nobody's there. Because it's Memorial Day. So I call the super and I'm like, hey, dude, it's, you know, 1201. We're here. Nobody else is here. He's like, I'll be right down. It's like 30 minutes later, he comes pulling in, you know, unlocks the door. He's like, all right, well, it goes right there. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay, that's cool. Where are your guys? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, uh, well, there's the trailer and there's the pieces. And we'd already unstrapped them. We'd been waiting for 30 minutes. And I was like, there's the pieces, but you guys have to unload them. What do you mean we got to unload them? I'm like, dude, we talked about this. I'm telling you right now, I'm not taking those off the trailer. So either you get guys down here or I'm going to load it back up. We're going to leave. 
he starts like going on and on. Like, I've never in my life, I've been doing this 20 years. I was like, you know what, dude, don't even worry about it. I tell, uh, I tell my guys, I'm like, Hey, just go ahead and strap it up. We're going to leave. And I tell him, Hey, when you get your stuff sorted out here, you call me, we'll come back. All right. But I'm leaving. And so we start loading up and he calls his boss, the owner. And he's like, this guy's leaving, blah, blah, blah. So he puts me on the phone with that guy. And I, and this is the owner of the company I met with. I said, Hey man, I explained this to you. We don't, we don't do delivery. And I was very clear. And I actually explained this to your site super like two weeks ago. Um, but nobody's here. He's like, please don't leave. I'll get guys down there. Just please stay. I promise you I'll get guys down there to take it off. So we wait like another hour and like all these like temp labor guys show up. Right. (laughs) And so this whole time, this site super is just mad dogging me, just like mumbling under his breath and like staring at me and pacing around. And I'm just being, you know, calm. And so anyways, these guys show up and the site super's like, so, uh, how many guys going to take to lift this off this trailer? I was like, I don't know. You're a tough guy. I think you can get, get it by yourself. And he's like, fuck you. You're a fucking concrete diva. I'm like, yes, I am. And I almost, dude, I swear to you, I almost changed the name of my company to Concrete Diva because I love it so much. Uh, but, yeah, man, it just, it, it's a thanks job doing installations. And we're, for whatever reason, we're like one of those rare industries where we get just kind of like copped into doing it where nobody else does but we do because we feel obligated we feel like we have to um yeah i mean for me sometimes it's a little bit of a connection to the beast too and 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 honestly you know we've we've done it in situations where we've had other people install it and it always ends up in a fiasco where i end up having to come out there and deal with something anyway so it's just kind of like i give up on this it's never going to happen this way and i'm you know, I'll just do it and yeah. cost you a lot of money, but I, I will take care of it. Well, and that's how I see it too. I mean, a lot of things we've installed, I think part of it was, uh, you know, it's like taking your kid to the first day of school. You know what I mean? There's an ownership to it. And as opposed to, let's just say other s- surface companies, right? They throw their whatever slab on a CNC machine. They cut it up. It is what it is. You know, they've only had their hands on it for whatever few minutes. They don't care who they turn it over to where, you know, I mean, part of it's psychological. You know, we've taken this typically from the point of conversation, raw material, forming, finishing, sealing. You know what I mean? And it's like that's your final moments to, like, see this piece go bye bye. Anyway, that's what I've seen. Yeah. And inevitably, you know, it's like, oh, we chipped the corner. Can you come fix it? Or, you know, I'm just going, oh, God. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> this I'm, I'm, having to, I'm having to waste time on this anyway. So why not make get it paid for it? Get the goddamn yeah. thing in there. And if I chip the corner, I'm happy to deal with my own problem rather than somebody right. screw up. So that, that's always what kind of just made me feel better about doing it myself. Yeah. I get it. I mean, I see both sides of it. I just, I, at the very, very end, I had a couple installs go completely sideways as far as I was told one thing. I assumed that I was being told the truth and you show up to the job site and the job site is like a gladiator course. There's no clear pathway to where you're going. There's huge piles of dirt. You have to go over, you know, piles of lumber and debris. There's live electrical cables sticking out that if you touch them will shock you. You know, it's, like one thing after another and um, cabinets weren't set to the correct height and you're modifying pieces in the field to get them to fit. 
and all these things. And I guess maybe if I had a more uh, robust contract for installations that outline like, you know, installation covers this much time on site, any additional time to build at $400 an hour uh, or whatever it is, then maybe I would, I wouldn't uh, regret it as much, but I'd go out and easy and I charge 300 bucks for installation and I'd spend 10 hours out there and um, you know, (laughs) lose a whole day of work and I'm paying my guys. It it just wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. And that was it for me. And I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this ever again, ever. Yeah, it was always T&M for us. We'd have an installation allowance in there and tell them what we thought it might cost. But at the end of the day, when we had showed up there and inevitably had to threaten to get back in our truck and turn around a couple of times and leave before they got mm. their shit together and cleared us a path, then, uh, you know, but it's all on their dime at that point. So they tend to be a little more responsive. Yeah. <clears throat> it's now, true. Joe, you're, you guys maybe went over this before I got my ear pods figured out, but. SC fabrication out of Napa. I know we're talking about installation. So, you know, you deal with some pretty healthy clients, right? I mean, I've had conversations with you where, you know, you're dealing with, you know, upwards of six figure um, contracts. So there has to be, I'm guessing, uh, a pretty good expectation on the products that you make. There's a huge expectation on the products that I make. Um, Yeah, we got to get it right. and and I think we've got a pretty good reputation of it over the last 14, God, I guess it's been closer to 16 years now. And, um, it, it's not easy. I mean, we're, we're a job shop. I, you know, I'm not, I don't really consider myself a designer or really an artist. I, I'm, I'm here to help create, you know, my, I feel really comfortable in a zone of figuring out how to do incredibly complicated projects and getting them in. And that's what we built our reputation on, and it's done pretty well for us. And just starting to really kick in, and I feel like kind of hit our stride on that. And uh, and yeah, it, these these projects are insanely complex. And I guess I'm the only one crazy enough at the table at the meeting to say, "Sure, I can do that." <laughs> sure. Stop and try to figure it out. You know. <laughs> You know, there's an element of that, and we've got a good reputation, and they know I generally deliver on it. So, excellent. Yeah, and, and knowing you over the years, I mean, we've bounced around materials and and things. You know, so what that was part of my question coming up is, especially as you continue to grow. I was just down there a minute ago, seeing some of the cool projects you're on. How, I mean, in your opinion, how do the materials that you're using now? from materials you've used in the past, how, how does that fit in to keep, you know, escalating you in the quality of your work? Are you trying to work makers mix into this? No, of course. <laughs> Billy Mays over there. Hey everybody, right, let me man. tell you about makers mix. Come to side. <laughs> He's got his blue shirt on and his hands going right. and the cocaine under his nose. <laughs> Sham wow. <laughs> we all deal in white powders at the end of the day. That's it's right. right. <laughs> John's huffed more than any of us. Phew. I don't think I can do that stuff anymore. Before we get on to Maker Mix, because Maker Mix is an important topic of conversation. But before we get on that, I'm interested in you and these big clients and these big budgets. Have you gotten to a point and how, if you have, have you gotten to a point where you're profitable on every project or the big projects you take on that at the end of the day, you lost money on them? It's, it tends to be a blend of both. Um, 
I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not at the point financially in my life where I'm, you know, where I really want to be. We're still working to get there. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten good enough at a lot of these jobs and we can bid them correctly to the point where we can ask for the price we need that has a nice pad in there that allows us to, to, to screw up a little bit along the way and not totally lose our ass on it. Uh, but at the end of the day, some hit big and some lose a little here and there and, and, and it all equals out to making a living, but I think we can do better. And how do you, when you're pricing out a project, how do you arrive at your price, especially on these large scale projects? Like what's your formula for that? Well, you know, I was in partnership with my uncle for a long time with the shop and we were connected to his general contracting firm. And that's how we kind of started it grew it as a business. But I recently took it over myself and now own it outright. Um, and we kind of switched to a model where instead of we had a, having too many employees, we actually contract with everybody. So I, I brought on a ace mold builder, Andre, who's, you know, just been amazing for us over the years. I rehired him and um, on a contract basis. So we all sit down, we look at a project, we figure out what our part and piece of it's going to be and, you know, start making spreadsheets. That's what it comes down to. There's really no magic formula that gets us through all this because every project's so unique and did these huge plinths and planters down in Palm Springs and then turned around and did, you know, a bunch of fireplace surrounds and countertops for a huge job down in Malibu. And then, you know, about to move on to a massive board form cladding job down in Beverly Hills. You know, every, you know, it's always something new, which is part of the challenge that I think we all kind of get off on. But at the same time, it's not easy to figure them out and figure out how to make money at them. Yeah. I read a really great book and it's actually a really good audio book called Profit First for Contractors by Sean Van Dyke. And I would highly recommend it if you haven't read it or listened to it. It's a really um, informative way for guys like us that operate in this type of industry to look at our business from a profitability viewpoint and try to get to the point that we're profitable on every single project. Um, definitely worth the read. And definitely worth the audiobook. But oh, the reason I ask is because now. I've what's that? <laughs> I said I'm writing it down now. Profit first for contractors. The website is profitfirstcontractor.com. Um, <clears throat> but a long, long time ago, I was approached by a hotel to bid, I want to say like 300 sinks, concrete sinks for a hotel. And my traditional way of pricing a project. A square footage, it's say 250 bucks a square foot plus the cost of the sink form, another $1,500, uh, just was going to be uh, untenable for the client. There's no way they were going to go for that price at a multiple of 300. Yeah. And so what I did is I sat down and I looked at what is what is my cost to operate per hour. And luckily, I, like you, I have a a big enough history that I can look back at annual uh reports and see like, what is our operating cost? What is the cost of employees? What's the cost of insurance? What's the cost of the building? What's the cost of car car insurance? What's the cost of this net? What do I need to make an hour, you know, every day that we're running? Um, What kind of margin do we want? Profit margin at the end of the year, because hopefully we made a little bit more than than we spent. Um, And then 
that divided by, you know, if we actually operate 20 hours a week, because maybe the other 20 hours are spent picking up materials, responding to emails and cleaning the shop and all those kind of things, where we need to be. And at that point in time, that was 325 an hour is what I came to. 325 an hour. And so then I was able to sit back and look at the sinks on if I invest in building 10 molds out of rubber, what is that going to cost? What's going to cost for the master? What's going to cost for the rubber? What's going to take time-wise to build those molds? Once I have those molds, what's my time to mix up that amount of concrete one shot, because it's economy of scale, and pour those 10? How long is that going to take? And then every morning when I come in, how long is it going to take to pop those out, clean the molds up, dry them out, spray release? But I went through that exercise, and instead of maybe the average sink costing, I don't know, $3,000, the average sink dropped to $1,200 based hmm. on that time frame. Um, and that was a much more reasonable price point for the client. Now, I couldn't do that for one off, but if I was doing 300 of them, then I could do it like that, right? But that exercise was such a great exercise um, to arrive at price from a, from a profitability viewpoint. So this, this book, Profit First for Contractors, it's different than what I just told you, but it's it's still the same mindset. You know? Yeah, yeah. And we've, you know, we've actually looked at a number of hotel jobs over the years. I don't know. Sometimes I'm very thankful we haven't gotten any of them because a lot of them turned into giant fiascos because when you start doing, seeing what happens, with, I don't even know how those places get built, in all honesty, because we've, we've seen a couple go up in the Napa Valley and how they've been mismanaged and I mean, it starts getting into like almost a political game and, and value engineered and stuff. It's just a, a, a race to the bottom at the end of the day. And, huh. you know, been approached and we put numbers to it and made us go through those same exercises, which again, really, you know, even though we didn't get the job, it's a really good thing for anybody to go, you know, how the economies of scale start to affect things, but also understanding what costs are and, and, you know, reflecting on your business a little, which is a hard thing to do when your head's to the grindstone every day. But, you know, I always just try and take a day out a week and sit at my computer. And go through well, that's what I found. I mean, the, the hardest thing for me was employees. Employees were difficult. Um, uh, and when I say employees, other than like you guys all heard this from me, referred to it as employee mentality. I felt like too many people came on board with you know, with nothing really invested in them other than what time they were punching the clock and how long they were going to be there. And then ultimately, whatever you paid, they were going to figure out how to get out of you whatever they felt they should have gotten anyway, whether that was hours lost or materials taken or a tooling missing or whatever the yeah. case may be. So similar to what you did, what well, you definitely have a better way of explaining it to me. Uh, Brandon, remember, I, did, I went, with a method of, I just called it splitting profit. Same thing. We all sat down, we looked at this project and said, you know, what are the numbers here? And now my brother's not with me right now. He's back, he's uh, working with the National Guard. But uh, the other guy, Billy, you know, if we sat down, we went under it. Like you're saying, tell me what you need out of this. I'll come up with what I need out of this. What can you take care of? Yada, yada, yada. And if we agree, we agree. And if we don't, then you move on. That worked for us. Yeah, I remember talking to you years ago about that system, and it was really eye-opening. And I've, I've tried to implement that in your business. I think it works a lot better because it you know, really lights a fire under everybody's ass. You know, they, They've got their own little mini, mini businesses that they need to deal with, and, and, it, and it changes the dynamic. Yeah. They know. And there's that. an air of responsibility. 
Yeah, you know, that's the toughest what I'm thing for me for. is they, <laughs> they need to do something. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if they go over budget or, you know, whatever, mess it up. I, I, the hardest thing for me working with people that let's say were working for me is, you know, I, I'm still trying as I, I, you know, for a minute, I went through the whole contractor thing. You know, I have my general license and did remodels and the whole nine yards and thought, you know, in my pickup truck and I drove around and, you know, well, I'm not getting work. Walk back into the shop, see whatever it was, let's say it was formed up in reverse or whatever the case may be. And the next thing you know, whoever did that took four hours to do it. Now you're going to pay them two more hours to tear it all apart. That material's a wash. And then four more hours to do it again the second time. And then I'm looking at it like, wait a minute, man. <laughs> that's, that's not the way this works. So I found, as, as I've said, when I went this direction, there was an error responsibility. And so if so-and-so followed that same path, well, I mean, we'll find a happy place, but ultimately that's on you. I guess you need to pick up some more materials. <laughs> you know, I, I, in other words, I'm not just losing everything and you're gaining everything. That, that was yeah. the difficult part for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it changes the dynamic and it changes the mentality. And, and you know, I, I, I will be the first to tell you I am not a great leader of men. <laughs> not something Same. I really want to do. And I'm sure I could work on it, and probably gain those skills, but it would be a spectacular amount of effort on my part to do yeah. it. I mean, to me, it's simple. You show up and you work and you don't screw hey. up. There and is, you do what you need to get done. Just get it done. Yeah. You should know what you're doing. Yeah. Apparently, agree. no one else has that agenda. And <laughs> it's just completely lost on me. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, yeah, that's the thing I learned long ago. I think I'm good at a lot of things. Um, but I am not a good boss. I'm a terrible boss. Because I, I don't, I don't, that's a skill set I don't have is to come in and be your boss. Um, you know, I, I didn't wake up yesterday striving for one more mouth to feed. So if you're working, if we're, I always looked as we're working together, you know, what's going on, you get it done. Yeah. I shouldn't, I don't, I don't want to look, I don't want to come back. I don't want to remeasure after you. I don't want to look over your shoulder all day. I got things I need to get done. So, I mean, so yeah, I, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not the guy. Yeah. Yeah, employees is tough. You know, in recent years, I've come to view it more as um, as kind of my hostage takers in a way. They hold me hostage because even though I need help sometimes, uh, once somebody is, you know, working for me and it's like, hey, be here at eight every day. Well, then I have to be here at eight every day. And there's a lot of things I might need to do in the morning. I have little kids, um, whatever. Maybe I just want to watch Judge Judy for an hour before I start work. I don't know what it is, but now I got to be here at eight. I got to be here the whole time they're here. And my sense of freedom and kind of why I wanted to own my own business is now I'm stuck to this guy that I'm paying, you know, 17 bucks an hour and he's holding me hostage. Yeah. And that's, well, I know that's that. not a healthy way to I mean, look at it. That's a good way to describe it because yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I really feel like it's a damper. I, I'm never more happy than I am cruising away at something. That's just so, me. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I put my ear pods in and I put in a podcast or an audiobook, and uh I'm I'm my happiest. My yeah. most unhappy is when I gotta be here and 
I'm trying to work on what I'm working on. And somebody's like, Hey man, how do you do this? Hey man, uh, I got a prop <laughs> over here. Hey, can you come take a look at this? I'm like, fuck, like, just yeah. leave me alone. Let me do what I'm doing. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. And that's, you know, I see these guys growing companies and good for them. Um, I'm, I'm happy for them, but when they have 10, 20, 30 employees, that just feels like an absolute nightmare to me, just based on w- how I perceive happiness and what I value to be, you know, valuable to me is personal space and my own time and my own autonomy to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Yeah. <clears throat> that's the <clears throat> that's the most valuable thing of all. Yeah. Yep. That's why I started a company. Well, you seem like you find a found a good balance there at at, at some point. I'm I'm always impressed. Bring people uh, in. To get something knocked out and, you know, here and there. And then and cut them loose. Cut them loose and <laughs> back to what you need to do. And then, and then the panic sets in when another big project comes in. Yeah. You're like, ah! And start making yeah. calls and everybody's like, oh, I got a new job at Red Lobster. And you're like, <laughs> You know, well, what John was saying, the race to the bottom is a quick one. Sinks. Sinks was something that, you know, in 2004 is kind of what I started my company on was sinks. And we did tons of sinks. Yeah. And then in the last, I don't know, four or five years, there's several on time, uh, online retailers of sinks, not including Etsy. I mean, get on Etsy and it's just ridiculous, but just online. If you Google concrete sink, they're selling concrete sinks for 800 bucks delivered. Oh, dude, it's insane. It's so crazy. But I, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess, you know, I've made it a real point to really work with interior designers and people that take it out of the client's hands to pick it because the client's going to be way more inclined to spend you know, 800, 800 bucks, bucks. I think yeah. versus yeah. 2000, but a designer has a magical way of, you know, circumventing that whole process and designers, if they're savvy, they know that those are not going to be the same quality. But if, oh. if they saw anything like yeah. that in the past, they know that's a, a warning sign and they're going to stay away from it. Yeah. So. But unfortunately the, in my opinion, the damage has been done as far as public perception of, of value. Now hind designers, they get it, but, the general public at large now kind of like free shipping from Amazon now views that price point as kind of the the general consensus of this is what it should cost. I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, you know, let's, let's just talk about the crate alone. That's going to be four sheets of plywood. Have you looked at what plywood costs now? 90 bucks a sheet. <laughs> yeah. Plus I have to go pick it up. There's $400 right there. Yeah. And it's no, $800 just... delivered. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. what? <laughs> I just shared yeah. mine. As you know, I, I just showed the pictures of that cast in place job I did. Two sheets of plywood was $197. Yeah. Freaking ridiculous. I'd say you actually and, got up pretty easy on that one. I went and made the last set of crates for the last shipment of these giant planters that I did. And it was, yeah, upwards of $5,000 to get the wood for the crates. Whew. And freight. <laughs> then add freight onto that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, when I see these prices, they include shipping. I just... I, I run the numbers and there's no way they're making money. They're losing money. Um, but, you know, I, at some point they'll figure that out. You know, at some point they're going to be like, oh, man, I'm going the wrong direction. You know, we're staying <laughs> super busy. Get there. Yeah, we got 100 sinks going into given time, but we're going, we're going the wrong way, you know? Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't understand why it takes so long for these people to figure out that it that that's a rat that's a, a it really is just defeating themselves at that point i don't i don't quite get how these guys survive on etsy and stuff for so long yeah i think it's because they don't i think i think what yeah. it is is they have other jobs and this is something they do for fun yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, but it, it hurts public perception. Eh, whatever. I mean, I can't control other people and they can charge what they want to charge. And maybe every niche industry deals with this, but the perception of this general word or general, you know, view of concrete. You know, come on, man. Concrete can be everything from a you know, a guy using a wheelbarrow and a and post hole concrete that's you know made by whomever to something all the way on the end of, of the uh, UHPC kind of concretes and anywhere in between. And then, of course, then the whole you know fiasco and ceiling technologies and anyway, blah 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 blah. And I think that's that's a battle this little niche industry is always going to have where people start to separate themselves based on the quality of their quote-unquote concrete countertops or concrete sink, concrete in general, versus someone else who's using the same verbiage calling it concrete. I guess I want to say, I mean, look, I, I just, I don't know, installed a faucet today, and, you know, everybody's pretty on board if you look at, say, a Price Fister versus a Moen. You know what I mean? <laughs> just simply by the name and the, the perceived quality of the product. We still, in this little niche industry, after all these years, concrete is, can still be perceived as concrete. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> it yeah. is. Now, we know the difference in concrete, and we know the difference in quality and how that affects longevity and sealer performance and color fastness and all of those different things and how there's actually value to that um, yeah. just on, on the economy of timeline like if you put in a, a countertop and the sealer peels off and they put on some crappy topical color that wore off and after two years they replace it what was the value in going with the guy that was 30 percent your price versus you put in a countertop and it's there 15 years later and it still looks beautiful so ultimately you were the cheapest option available because you use the highest quality product but the client if they're you know if they don't know the difference then uh then they don't see it that way they see concrete as concrete so yeah, it's a it's definitely an educational part of the industry, um, and I think Joe was right to only work with kind of high end designers and architects, people that get it, people that you can have that conversation with. They understand what it is, and there you go. Because a homeowner, unfortunately, a they're a one time sale, and b I think it's a losing battle because they're just going to Google concrete sink and oh look at this guy, you know? Okay, that's who you should go with. It is a losing battle. I get those phone calls a lot. And, you know, it, it, it's a pretty easy litmus test for me to go through now and just kind of go, well, you know, I can run them through some questions and they'll either talk themselves out of it immediately or, or, you know, or if they get through that conversation are still like, you know, no, I, I think this, this, yeah, I want to do it. And, and, and those are, you know, generally i've had some great homeowner clients over the years i've never had any that really screwed me but i've always had a really good conversation before we went down that road and what is that litmus test? What, do you, what do you yeah what is that? what do you ask them what, yeah. <laughs> what is that conversation yeah. well i mean I'm, I'm really frank about it i just go this 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 is what we do you know here's a, here's some examples and samples of this You're clearly drawn to it seek me out based on hows or wherever you found in um, you know, you, you've come here and looked at this, and this is why my concrete costs what it does. And, and basically, it comes down to, you know, I'm giving you a product, use a totally different sealing technology. It's non-toxic. It's, you know, it's and most of all, what it is is 
this is, you know, I explained to them what a topical sealer is and what the pitfalls of it are and how it can come off years down the road. And I really just kind of clinch it with, I've been in business for 14 years. I'm still going to be here in, in 10 more years. And in two or three years, you're probably going to think, man, these counters could really use a refresh. You call me, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to happily come out to your house. I'm going to charge you a little bit of money to do it. But two hours later, your counters are going to look like new. You're going to be super stoked and, and you, you move on. And I said, call the other guys. And if you do actually get a hold of them to come deal with it, they're going to come in and they're going to scrape this crap off and sand it for hours. And then they're going to tape off your whole kitchen and spray a horrible, toxic two-part urethane car paint on it. And you're going to have the same problem again in a few years. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. the sales pitch. You know, that's the sales pitch. What's the litmus? I, I, what's the litmus test? What do you run them through to like qualify them that, that they actually want your product? I'm trying to think of how I, I mean, I usually kind of go into the sales pitch really quick and it, <laughs> you're like, by John. the end of it, I get an answer. <laughs> you know, they're like, well, this other guy's five dollars Yeah. Okay, fine. It only takes a few minutes to run the sales pitch. Um, yeah. You know, you can generally, I don't know. A lot of it's just meeting them in person. Uh, I guess a lot of the litmus test is taking the time to, um, you know, talk to them a little bit on the phone. You can generally get a feeling for what the, what it's going to be. And if it seems worthwhile with the meeting, I always try to get them to come to my shop. I really don't do homeowner stuff. that's not in my immediate area. And I typically don't get those calls. So if they're in Napa or the Napa area, you know, the first, I guess one of the best litmus tests is to say, well, you know what? You come by the shop. And, and see what I have to offer. I'm right here in Napa and you can see some of the pieces and, and if they take the time to do that, you know, I can always get them with the sales pitch by the end of that meeting. Yeah. So the litmus test is really trying to get them to come and see what you do in person. And if they take the time to do that, they're, they're serious about it. And, you know, you can clinch it with a sales pitch, even if the other guy's cheaper. It's kind of like buying a car or something. Like I got, I got a new truck recently, and I went into four or five different dealerships and test drove a bunch of different trucks. But they're so goddamn good at those places, it was hard for me to get out of every one of them without buying a truck, even if it was something I didn't want. So I try to take a cue from that, and and that person person thing is really the key. We've transcended melamine. That's another big thing for. Yeah, what are you using? God, I hate that stuff. I hate it too. Yeah. We use phenolic plywood, and even though it's uh, at least on the face of it, quite a bit more expensive. You know, we're at a point where we can buy unit quantities, and that helps bring the price down. Um, and are you, you know, doing mainly upright cast with with the phenolic ply? Uh, no, we'll do we'll do face down casting with the phenolic ply. <clears throat> the the uh, Riga form plywood out of Litho, no, not Lithuania. Maybe Lithuania. Good lord. Anyway, some obscure country with a lot of birch trees. Um, is you can cast face down on it, and get a beautiful cream finish. It, it's wonderful stuff. And then you can turn around and use it four or five more times. Really careful with it. Yeah, we're not, you know, not super careful with it. But if you take a minute, you know, you can cut it down in edge boards. It's just, I just right. love seeing these pieces go from huge, you know, in not only that, you can buy that shit in five by twelve sheets. 
Um, what does that cost? Like a thousand bucks? No, God no. It's, it's, it's like 250, 300 bucks. It's really not that bad. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I've used Phenolic Ply. I use it for rammed earth. But the Phenolic Ply I've, I've received has had, I could see the wood texture below the coating. Yeah, uh, this stuff's very different. I mean, it, you know, there's a, a second company, um, so it's Riga from like Lithuania or something. And then there's stuff that's actually manufactured in Russia, which you don't see on, uh, <laughs> on many things. <laughs> that's yeah. almost equally as good. Sometimes some of them have some weird things in them. Um, but it, it's two-sided, it's phenolic, and there really is no grain transfer in it anymore. And it's like 12 ply plywood. And you can soak it in water for five days, pull it out and cast against it, and, and it'll be fine. It's marine grade. It, it's unbelievably high quality. Yeah, it ends up being about $80 a sheet shipped to us. Yeah, but that's not bad. I mean, that's I, I ended up going with that HDO for the same reason. You know, um, now granted, the HDO that I was getting was definitely more expensive than that. It was, I think, one hundred forty, hundred sixty dollars. The sheet. domestically produced HDO is far inferior to the Russian stuff. And, really? Um, and twice as expensive. Oh yeah, it was, there's no question. But what you're just describing, comparatively speaking, that's why I did it. Uh, you know, a piece piece of the uh, melamine. Well, first of all, I hate cutting that crap, and it just blows vacuum on or not with the uh table saw it blows crap everywhere you're breathing it you know it is what it is i don't like it at all the and then on the flip side as you were just describing i love the fact that i can do a project whatever that project may be i can even upright cast precast whatever sand it down anyway slowly watch what was a sheet of plywood end up you know edge forms or blocks or whatever the case may be and after it's finally been used six, eight, 10, 12 times, then it ends up going to the dump. You know, yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a much better feeling. Melamine just grossed me out from day one. And, and God, if you just scratch it wrong or look at it wrong and you end up with a trying to get a cream finish on a face and it, you know, explodes from a drop of moisture hitting it. Uh, yeah. It, it's a disaster for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Agreed. I mean, that's, that's, Pretty much all I've used for 18 years uh, is melamine, and there's different grades of melamine, as you know. And um, so I use, I think it's the cold rolled melamine. I'm not sure, but I get it from a cabinet supply store. But it's a much heavier coating on it, so it's durable. I've never actually scratched this melamine. The other stuff you with the really thin paper coating scratches super easily. Yeah. Um, but it's one use. You know, I pocket screw down, and then you silicone yeah. your edges and whatnot, and then it's firewood after that. So there's really nothing to do with it besides either burn it or, or uh, dispose of it. So I wouldn't even burn it. I think I'd be arrested in California. If I burned That's it. what I'm saying. Yeah. Was, well, Arkansas, man. Yeah. Arkansas. I have a burn pile. It, because they throw a fit if I throw it in a dumpster. They lose their minds if I put it in the dumpster. There's no construction debris allowed in a dumpster. I'm like, well, really? what am I supposed to do with it? They're like, that's a you problem. I don't know. You can't put <laughs> it in there. <laughs> that's a you problem. Okay, oh, then I'll burn yeah, it. I guess. Start using that. <laughs> I don't know. That's a you problem. <laughs> Dude, I threw some chunks of concrete in there that weren't even that big, and there was tons of trash on top of it too. Came out the next day. It was sitting next to the dumpster. The concrete. Pieces. Really? They sorted he, through it. 
He dug it out. He saw it in there, dug it out and set it. I mean, they're like little round tabletops, like 15 inch by inch and a half thick. Um, little tabletops he took out and set next to the dumpster. And then the next week he came and I'm like, hey man, what's going on with this? He's like, yeah, you can't put, can't put concrete in here. I'm like, well, I get I can't put huge pieces in here, but these are little, little pieces. He's like, nope. Wow. So now I roll it down into the valley. I got a valley next to my shop. I just like a bowling <laughs> ball downhill it goes. Someday, like a thousand years from now, archaeologists are gonna, you know, come across this stash of miscast concrete pieces and wonder what it was. <laughs> yeah, like dinosaur bones. Yeah. Maybe a million years from now. I don't know how long it takes. It would be awesome if it did fossilize somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you got to put uh, ICP on it, you guarantee yeah. an extra thousand years of lifespan. Minimum extra thousand years. <laughs> um, so back to, you know, John was hot to trot out of the gates about Maker Mix, but um, you do use Maker Mix. You were one of the earliest adopters of Maker Mix, and now you're our distributor for less than pallet quantities of Maker Mix. So if anybody wants to buy a couple bags, they want to get some TVP. Um, but they don't want to buy a full quantity. You're the guy to talk to and you can ship it to them anywhere in the United States. But I guess the first question is, what did you use before Maker Mix? What was the product you use as far as concrete? Well, we use Buddy Roads. I've always just, I am an eternal tinker, tinker and, you know, always feel like there's something better. Or there's always a better way to do something. So, so you were using ECC. From Buddy Rhodes, correct? Yeah, both ECC and GFRC. Um, okay. And you know, what was your experience with that? Were you happy with it, unhappy? I mean, we had it down. It worked good. Um, it was it was a solid <clears throat> foundation that we we were able to finally really sort of stabilize our our screw ups from from mixed design because you know I knew what was in that bag and I knew how it worked and, and what what to do with it because we had sort of followed that trajectory from from the early days and i had confidence in that product and it really it was the best thing in a bag available at the time so maker mix is on the market you're using ecc but at what point you're like i'm done with this i'm switching to this or is just i think this is going to be slightly better than this i'm going to give it a shot like what what was your thought process behind changing well i mean we we knew about maker mix in its earliest you know inception so as soon as it was available in any kind of form we could actually start to test um we knew within you know a very short period of time that and you know probably like a month or so that like okay i think we're at the point where this is probably going to be totally usable it probably took us about three months to really you know finish up projects that were based on samples that were made with buddy roads I didn't want to go through the trouble of trying to have to rematch those or anything, but we phased it out pretty quickly once we saw how it was reacting with the sealer, once we saw the versatility of one bag um, and everything it could do. Uh, so it, it was, it was a no brainer for us. It's just, it, it's a better product. So one of the no. problems that you struggled with in the beginning, one of the first, um, I wouldn't call it a failure, but first kind of like experience of, 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 um, problem solving was using a different plasticizer instead of TBP. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What happened with that? 
Well, I had I was just sitting on mountains of 420. So I was like, all right, well, I just, you know, I'm gonna use this stuff up. And um yeah, we we had some anomalies. It was working, but I think there was so much water in it. It required so much 420 that it was throwing other things off at the end of the day uh, that were causing some some inexplicable failures. And and I, I didn't have a baseline. I hadn't used TBP to begin with, so I didn't really understand what the difference was. Um, so I finally got my hands on some, and I'm like, all right, I'll you know, let's, let's, let's do this right from the beginning or, you know, let's start over, let's do this right. And, you know, <laughs> it was almost instantaneous. I mean, we put that stuff in up front in that pick and it just liquefied so fast. And, you know, it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. And I'm going, okay, now I understand what you guys are talking about when you're telling me, well, no, it should be way, way looser than that. Yeah. 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 Just from a pure workability standpoint, you can't get this stuff. Regular plasticizers. You just, you just can't. We've, we've tried probably five different ones now and um, everything we had couldn't hold a candle to TBP. Yeah. Yeah, It makes a difference. It it makes a difference when the materials are, you know, des- by design to work together, it's, um, it's, it's, cause I was the same thing. I mean, I, I tried using some other plasticizers, running them in different ways and this and that, and ultimately always came back to the one that like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that, you know, this, this is the one that works around to fit <clears throat> like a, you know, like a key in the slot, if you will. Yeah. And I mean, that's been the, you know, one of the coolest parts about being a distributor out here on the West Coast is really just starting to get to talk to a lot of people. Um, God, I miss Epic. Who misses Epic? Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't invited the last two years, so I can't say, but I'm sure it was a lot of fun. (laughs) It became funner when you didn't go. Sounds amazing. (laughs) Uh, You know, the sense of community that came from that and getting to talk to all of so one of the funnest parts of being a distributor has been uh, talking to a lot of people, many of whom I've never met before, but, you know, who are who are really, you know, it's the, the guys that need only a couple of bags are trying to do a project or a half pallet or whatever. And, you know, they're just getting getting started with this stuff. So being able to talk to them and help them out, uh, you know, and 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 see what it is they're doing and how they approach things has been really fun. But one of the hard, it's been a hard sell. The TVP is always one of the things I say right up front. Hey, you need to get this. And the first thing you need to do is take one of those bags off that half pallet. Go mix it up with the TVP so you understand where your starting point is. And then if you're going to go off and use some of that plasticizer that you've been using for years, then you're going to see that difference instantly. If you you don't do that, I mean, honestly, I can't really help you. It's going to cause so many issues that we just don't even know about that you know we we don't even have a place to start so you know it becomes incredibly hard to to troubleshoot people's stuff as well when they're when they when they go off the off the reservation and and start start using different stuff so um well i'll agree with that i mean yeah because too many people they'll look at the materials whatever those materials are independently Completely independently, whether we're talking again, plasticizer, the concrete mix, the sealer, whatever the case may be, 
And instead of looking at the, you know, the, the puzzle pieces together, and especially when it comes to certain mixes, in this case, a maker's mix and other plasticizers that, like you said, well, I've been using this one for years. This is the way I use it. And realize that now you get into a mix that's designed this way. And all of a sudden, yeah, what may have been effective for you now is you're using three times, four times as much, or it's become sticky or, or, or your fibers are balling up, whatever the case may be. And if a person doesn't fully understand the materials they're using and their ability to work together, the symbiotic relationship, if you will, then sometimes it can be blamed back on the mix. Oh, terrible. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're using the wrong plasticizer for this type of concrete. And I get it. Yeah, guys are just like, wow, now I got to buy that too, you know? Like, mm -hmm. well, yes. I mean, I do. <laughs> you do. It's I, meant to work together. <laughs> yeah. I have like 80 gallons of Adva 555. And so I did a big batch. I'm like, uh, I'm just going to use this Adva. And it turned to gelatin. Yeah. <laughs> because the PMA with all those fine particles just gelled it up. Yeah. And um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm guilty of it as well because, yeah, I spent money on that Adva and I want to use it. But, you know, I'll use that for pouring a concrete pad outside. You know, I won't use it for UHPC uh, mixes. I'd say John is partly to blame for this, though, because he never says no. John never says no. If you ask okay. John, John, can I use add the five by five? I would just say no, no, you can't. But John would say, well, technically yes, but but you got you're gonna have to get some tang, put a little yeah. bit of tang in there, get some cream of tartar, uh, get some Worcestershire sauce, and put a couple of drips of that in there. I mean, he's yeah. going to come up with this whole thing. It's just saying, no, no, use TBP. It was designed for maker mix. It's going to work perfectly. And that's really what it comes down to is, you know, there's, there's definitely other plasticizers that could possibly work, but not work as well. And they're going to introduce a host of other issues. Instead of, you know, save the time, save the hassle, use the products that are designed to work together. Like John said, these are designed to work together. Um, so we're not trying to like an ad hoc solution here. We're pulling something off the shelf or trying to make it work with this. Um, they're designed for each other. Just like Maker Mix is designed for ICT. Uh, it's a product designed to work hand in hand with the ceiling solution. It's not we're putting a plastic coating on top of it after the fact. And, you know, so now we'll take this, like you said, a two-part automotive finish and spray it on here and hope that it sticks and bonds and has longevity and doesn't yellow. Um, so anyways, yeah, I mean, these are all things that are designed to work together at the very base level. That's right. And they do. We've, you know, I've just really, it's, it's taken that last little bit of, you know, of, of doubt out of my mind about the product when it goes out the door. You know, I know, I, I know I've got it. Uh, it, the, the latest improvements to the sealer with the prime and the seal, you know, that combined together, the reactivity is so quick with the maker's mix and, you know, you know, if, give it a, I try to give everything a day or two pad before I actually go install it. And, uh, in that time period, you know, I can wash it down with water a couple of times and just know that it's sealed yeah. and, and know that it's going out the door ready to handle whatever the client's going to throw at it, which is all kinds of weird stuff. 
Hey, how do you like the new bags, by the way, the Kodak Pro bags? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, anything 80s, and it's really got a nice sort of 80s vibe <laughs> to it. So. Like a like a karate movie sunset in the background type thing, huh? Fuck yeah. There you go. I'm, I'm into it. You going to wear a headband while you're mixing? I know people have been, yeah. I, I, you got to get, uh, I think we got to get a really good new bag for the ad mix, too. And keep the, the rad mix. Rad mix. Yeah. I'm, I'm Dude, I was laying in I was laying in bed and I had that idea because I was thinking like we need to name the ad mix something. Um <laughs> and I'm just laying there and my wife is laying next to me. It's like eleven o'clock and I'm just like almost asleep and I wake up and I go, rad mix. She's <laughs> like, what? I'm like, that's it. Rad mix. Rad. <laughs> and she's like, okay, whatever. I'm like, it's genius. It's genius. <laughs> that's funny are you playing your old atari (laughs) i love it one of the things joe hit me on joe weren't you telling me that if the only the difficulty though you've had might as well just put this on the table difficulty you've had with maker mix though is dialing your colors along the way weren't right yeah yeah, that's uh, I. I <laughs> it's been a bit of a fiasco. I think there's some bad luck involved in that as well. I've made more color samples trying to get a couple of old looks that some designers, of course, uh, rolled around the shop with this eight-year-old sample that they found under their desk from God only knows what project and broke off a chunk of it and brought it in and go, well, I want this, you know, <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, the color, color matching to the old Buddy Rhodes samples, you know, or samples that I'd made using Buddy Rhodes, we, we blend almost all of our own color, um, for things that we do. And we've gotten pretty good at it over the years, but, um, the, the maker's mix is, is a little different and people do need to be aware that, that it's going to take actually less pigment to get to where they're going than they think. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Less pigment. Yeah. 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 It really intensifies the color. And I, you know, I mean, maybe John shed a little bit of light on that, but, uh, on why it does that, but it, 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 it really is a lot more intense and it varies. Yeah. Higher density. I think uh, ultimately what it boils down to is, you know, the UHPC mixes are such comparatively speaking, the high, high density, it, it, ultimately creates a higher intensity in color. And, you know, that's one of the things Brandon and I have talked along the, this whole route, you know, cost of materials and et cetera, et cetera. And how in this case, maybe maker's mix is, I don't know, it's not much, right? A buck or two bucks more a bag or a 50 pound bag or something like that. And realizing though, when it comes to something you may not be comparing it to, that might require a five or a 10% pigment load to create a certain color. And all of a sudden you're finding yourself using a one to 2%, you know what I mean? Maybe not as much as half, but definitely, you know, pigments are not inexpensive, especially with your, your higher intense colors. But yeah, so that, that was just one thing. I've seen the same thing. I mean, the pieces I just got done casting, I used to have a fairly, you know, 1% load to create, you know, a, a certain gray color that that a couple of the designers around here really have always liked. And 
as I kept moving forward, that same 1%, when they brought up an older piece, you're like, oh, oh, wait a minute. So now I'm running about 0.6% of that same pigment loading. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm seeing on average of 20, 30, sometimes even 40%, depending on the color, less pigment to get the same result. You know, well, I counted as a, I counted as a good thing. It's a little was a little frustrating at first, but I mean, ultimately, you're using less to get more out of it, which yeah, is never bad with pigments. No, well, that brings um, that whole topic is an interesting topic that we haven't talked about yet um, on the podcast, and that is the economics of concrete and the price of bag mix and TBP and how that relates to your overall profitability. And the conversation that John and I have had numerous times privately is, you know, we, we hear that from guys like, oh, well, I can get this for this price. And, but if they do the math at all, let's say that you're doing a kitchen that takes 10 bags, right? So let's say they're, they're paying $35 a bag, so that's $350. And then they have another $30 on TBP, so $380. But that kitchen should be $6,000, $7,000 for that kitchen if you're charging appropriate prices for your work. So how is $380 making you unprofitable? And especially when it compared to the other mix they're going to use, which might be $20 a bag. So they're $200 yeah. plus, plus plus sizes are 220 So we're talking about a difference of $160 between yeah. the, the inferior product and the top of the line, best product you can use, $160 difference on a $6,000 kitchen. So are you either, are your bills so high? that you're, you're losing money, that you have less than $160 margin on that project, you're not pricing yourself right, um, you haven't crunched the numbers yet to realize that you're, even though the, the bag price is quote unquote higher, that it's really not costing you that much more per project, it's negligible. I don't know, it's just one of these conversations that I don't think people have really put thought into. They just make these gut reaction proclamations, oh, that's really expensive. Yeah. But when you actually do the math, it's not. It's not that expensive. Well, I mean, you said it earlier, Kodiak grows about a different mindset. And I think for a lot of business owners, you know, guys that do this, yeah, um, if, if you're getting caught up in your material costs in this business, you're really thinking about things really wrong. Um, you know, they've never been a part that is, you know, a huge factor um, for us. Once we figured out that there was a better material to use out there for it it was always more cost effective to use that material from a labor standpoint than it was to spite with something that wasn't quite what it should have been. Yeah. So there's, well, there's I mean, no question that, yeah, really it, it, it's, it's not worth, not worth thinking. You want the best product you can possibly get to help accomplish your goal. And to build your reputation, to sustain your reputation, because yeah. that's everything. Uh, but what you just said, labor. I mean, that's the other part that people don't take into account is, well, I'm just going to pick up white Portland. I'm going to go to a different distributor and get white sand. I'm going to go to a different distributor and get this. And then I'm going to order this online. I'm going to order that online. I'm going to order that online. Then I'm going to spend four hours batching all these ingredients out. Right? Yeah. What's and your time worth? And if you an error that is Oh, definitely making an error. I mean, yeah. on a long enough timeline, you're going to make an error. Yeah. But let's say, let's say you're like, hey, my time's too valuable to do that. I'm going to pay some kid 17 bucks an hour to do that, right? So I'm paying this kid 17 bucks an hour. Well, he's, he's doing all this crap for six hours, right? So right there, I've already exceeded my cost difference between using a crappy product. That's a bag product, by the way. Crappy bag product in a, in a 
uh, top of the line back product. But that kid you're paying 17 bucks an hour, the chances of him messing up are dramatically increased because he doesn't have the same vested interest as you do. Right. You know, he's just yeah. bopping along, ah, 1.7 pounds of this, 2.4 pounds of that, you know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I had a guy over here. He was high all the time. This guy was high all the time. Nicest guy in the world. Loved him. But he was high all the time. But we recast everything a minimum of three times. Minimum. <laughs> Every project. And in my life, I never experienced this. I mean, you, you recast things occasionally, um, but it's occasional. You know, it's maybe one out of every 20 projects. You don't like something about it. And you're like, eh, I'm just going to recast that. But we recast everything, everything a minimum of three times. And after a few months of him working here, I finally said, dude, <clears throat> what do you think about us casting everything three times? He's like, yeah, man, I don't know how you're profitable doing that. I don't, I don't know how you run a business doing that. I'm like, I don't either. I don't either. And I was like, you know, at this point, I was like 16 years in business. I was like, I've been doing this for 16 years. For the last 15 years, this has never happened. So what do you think is different? What do you think is different? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, you, you're different. You're the concrete cooler, bro. You're, you know, you're messing this whole thing up. I was like, I love you. I love you. You can come over and hang out anytime you want. We can talk about whatever but I got to let you go because you're just costing me too much money. But that's the human element. And that's what really costs you as well. So it's the economics of it is guys think they're, they're saving a buck, but as I like to say, they're stepping over dollars to pick up dimes. You know, they're yeah. not saving anything. They're costing themselves money. And, um, and what they think is a, um, a high cost item that's going to hurt their, their profitability is really at the end of the day, the cheapest way to do what they want to do and be profitable. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question that, you know, when, when you start looking at all those perspectives, it, it, it just, it's a no-brainer. Um, yeah, we went through that process for years. And, and, you know, I mean, even now we have a standing policy in the shop of you batch and then somebody else double checks it, you know. And that stems from all those years of fucking stuff up yep. and having to recast. And, you know, I... <laughs> I, 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 at one point, I think when we were really starting to get some pretty high performance concrete put together, we had something like 20 different ingredients in one batch of concrete that we had to individually batch. Yeah. And, um, you know, you just can't do it at this level, you know, without, without those products and you don't want to be trying to source all that stuff. You're, you're just killing yourself. And that's uh, really what you're talking about. Is that, that is an actual cost that can hurt profitability oh, it's, it's super painful yeah i mean just to go to the hardware store or the three different places i'd have to go to get cement sand and you know whatever some plasticizer from somewhere locally i mean that's an entire day of my time that could be spent building molds you know lost opportunity it's just, i mean that yeah, that costs crazy you three thousand dollars it cost yeah. you three thousand dollars to save if you'd have bought a whole pile to mix that was 50 bags, maybe $5 more a batch to have it bagged, or even $10 more a batch. So that's 500 bucks, but you just spent $3,000 to save $500. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. No, yeah, this, this whole, the, econ the economic of these conversations, that's when I just ultimately shake my head when someone's on the other side of that conversation. No, 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 no. You know, and you'll see a picture of them that they posted on Instagram or something, and they still got you know, 25 gallon buckets lined up or something. It's <laughs> like, oh man, I don't, it's just, that argument blows my mind. Yeah, really but is. I've been there. 
gives I've me the heebie-jeebies, man. Yeah, I mean, we've all been there. We've all had that mindset at one time. True. It's just part of being a business owner. You think, I'm going to save money here. This is a place yeah. I can save money. But you're not saving money. No, it kills you. Joe, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We'll definitely um, circle back and do another podcast in a few months and kind of see what's new and, you know, whatever else you've learned about the Kodiak Pro line that um, you made modifications to and how business is going. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you both and uh, always good to check in and chat and um, looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Bye.